This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 167, Operation Crusader, Part 1. Last time, General Rommel, the Desert Fox, launched a raid against the British position closest to him in mid-September 1941. His Midsummer Night's Dream, as it was dubbed, was supposed to disrupt the Commonwealth forces, grab supplies from them, and test their mettle. But little came of it. The British were not found in strength at the supposed location. No supplies were absconded with. And worst for Rommel, his interpretation of this exchange led him to all the wrong conclusions, that the British were in no way ready to attack him. The British were preparing to fight, and to not simply sit back and let the Axis forces break themselves on Auchinleck's defensive line. German air reconnaissance showed a pipeline and a rail line coming ever closer to the British front. Yet Rommel chose to read these facts differently. The answer to his misconstruing British intentions wasn't based so much on what they were doing, but by what Rommel was trying to do. He was becoming obsessed with Tobruk and its capture. Hence, the intelligence that came to him through his Italian spies or German pilots, simply reaffirmed for him that Auchinleck was going to hold still and pray that Tobruk could withstand the Axis assault. However, because he was Rommel, his upfront dispositions were solid, if the British-led forces ever tried to make a move. A part of his, Rommel's, well-fortified front was the extension of it by some 20 miles further inland to Sidi Omar, some 80 miles or 128 kilometers 
east-southeast from Tobruk. And even then, he would string up massive amounts of wire south of that. The British would not do to him again what they had tried during battle acts, namely swing around his defensive line to the south, far into the desert. In various places to the south, there were dried-up riverbeds instead of waterways, normally used as paths. However, after Rommel's teams were done, they were rivers of minefields. Now, certain sections to the south could be left unattended, that the Commonwealth forces could not pass through without paying a high price. Still, prudence was the order of the day. Using the Italian Savona division, eyes were kept on the inland part of the frontier defenses. As for the all-important coast road, that was kept in German hands, of course. In regards to the Axis assault on Tobruk itself, that would be carried out by General Newman Silkhau and his 15th Panzer Division, coming in from the southeast of the port city, along with a newly arrived German Infantry Division, commanded by Major General Summerman, now dubbed the Africa Division. They were supported by a Panzer Group artillery, commanded by General Botker. As for making sure the Commonwealth forces inside Tobruk did not escape, that was the job of General Navarini and his 21st Italian Corps, comprised of the Bologna, Trento, Brescia, and Pavia divisions. Those units were interspersed within the groups of attacking forces. Rommel had other units, to be sure, such as the 21st Panzer Division, led by General Cruel, General Gambara's 20th Italian Mobile Corps, which was stationed south of Tobruk, the Trieste Motorized Division, and the Ariete Armored Division. The Italians were either stationed south of Tobruk, so no help could come from that direction, or in between Tobruk and the Axis front line. It was this very sound distribution of men and weapons that allowed Rommel to focus solely on taking the stubborn British holdout. As such, the Desert Fox set November 21st as the day the port town would be reduced. Its resistance ended. As Rommel was gearing up to clean up his backyard, which would free enough forces to, hopefully, drive into Alexandria, Auchinleck was moving forward with his attack plan as well. The first prudent thing to be done for any offensive is to pick the leader, someone Auchinleck could turn the day-to-day administration over to and get back to his job of supplying the soon-to-be attacking 8th British Army, as well as keeping the impatient Churchill at bay, not to mention making sure the United States did not forget about North Africa with all their Lend-Lease material. To make Auchinleck's job more challenging, but in a good way, the Western Desert Force of General Richard O'Connor that went on to fight in brevity and battle axe, was now being transformed into the British 8th Army proper. It would have two corps of three divisions each, along with all the normal supporting units and troops, which now meant there was a plethora of possible leaders to choose from to lead the upcoming crusader. Churchill wanted General Jumbo Wilson to have the job. After all, he had done an outstanding job in Syria. Wasn't it time for his steady hand to guide their forces against Rommel? Yet C&C Middle East Auchinleck replied, Yes, 
Wilson was a solid commander who had done well, but he also had other abilities, political abilities, and all his charm and skill were still needed in the Middle East to keep the area calm now that the Germans and Italians had been pushed out. The British Ninth Army, forming in Syria at the same time, needed Jumbo. To Auchinleck's mind, if it wasn't broken, don't fix it. And Syria was now not broken. No, the CNC Middle East wanted General Sir Alan Cunningham to lead the Eighth Army. He had been victorious in Somalia and Abyssinia. It was time for him to take a step into a larger world. But as Auchinleck would find, and this would not be the last time, he had chosen poorly. Cunningham was a solid officer, but not imaginative, which was needed, not only to fight Rommel, but to do so in the desert. Now that Operation Crusader had a commander, Auchinleck's staff put two options for attack in front of him. Option one was for one force to pin down Rommel's forces near the coast, while a second stayed well south and made a dash for Benghazi. Thus, the Axis would be cut off from supplies further west. The second option, again, called for Cunningham to divide his forces and use one to pin down the enemy forces in front of them, along the frontier wire, while the second force swung around the most southern end of Rommel's front line, near Sidi Omar, and make for Tobruk. Cunningham did not take long to realize the infeasibility of the first plan. Why build up a large force just to split it apart, and then have the two sides travel so far from each other that mutual support was not an option? No, it was better to have them stay within the same area. Prudence called for this, considering this was Cunningham's first time going up against the energetic and unpredictable Rommel. But then came the lack of imagination Cunningham would be known for. Though the idea of engaging the German front line so another force could swing around was straightforward enough, and thus predictable, Crusader would end up being nothing more than the two attacks already against Africa Corps, Brevity and Battleaxe, just writ large i.e. corps would replace divisions. However, Cunningham saw the picture before him clearly enough to know that the main task of Crusader was to knock out Rommel's panzers. If that could be done, then many things were possible. Tobruk could be approached and hopefully relieved. The Axis front line could be rolled up or attacked from behind, and perhaps Benghazi could be taken once the Axis were in disarray, with their tanks reduced. But that was putting the cart before the horse. For now, all thought went towards the destruction of Rommel's two panzer divisions. Cunningham wrote up the following as the tasks for Operation Crusader. 1. The enemy armed forces are the target. 2. They must be hemmed in and not allowed to escape. 3. The relief of Tobruk must be incidental. It's not that Cunningham cared less for those trapped men at Tobruk, but that would happen as a matter of course if the German armor could be removed from Rommel's chessboard. Still, a military commander's thinking can be faulty in several ways. He can be too aggressive, or too lax, or too focused 
on one particular aspect of a coming battle. And that's what Cunningham was slipping into. As much as Rommel was making his world the taking of Tobruk, his defensive dispositions were well balanced. What's more, he had his various units practice close coordination drills in special regards to engaging enemy armor. Whereas Cunningham, in his writing down the words, the enemy armor forces are the target, believed that was enough to make it a reality once action was underway. But how specifically were they to be destroyed? Was it the British tank units that were so superior that just somehow getting them in close would be enough? Perhaps just by isolating the panzers, as Crusader would hopefully do, was supposed to make them vulnerable. That's certainly how some of his staff officers felt. In their minds, the tank had simply replaced the horse, and what was needed was dash and elan. Now, having confidence and pride in the men one commanded was essential, but more was needed. The German panzers would be firing back. A ground-level understanding of armored warfare was called for, but Cunningham did not have that, nor practical tank experience. But the plan was now in place. It was time for the particulars to be worked out. The 4th Indian Division and the 2nd New Zealand Division, both of the 13th Corps, would keep the Italians along the Axis front, closest to the coast, from Solemn to Fort Campuzo to about 20 miles further south, stationary with a general engagement. This force would be led by Lieutenant General Godwin Austin. Meanwhile, the armor would be massed and under the direction of Lieutenant General Pope and his 30th Corps. Pope had armor experience, coming from the war office's armored fighting vehicles as its head. But he had died in a plane crash shortly after arriving. His replacement was Lieutenant General Willoughby Norrie of the 1st Armored Division, which was currently arriving in Egypt. Just below that 20-mile mark south of Fort Campuzo, where the 2nd New Zealand Division would be engaging the front line, the 30th Corps would swing around along a wide front. In the lead would be Gott's 7th Armored Division, specifically the 7th and 22nd Armored Brigades, and its job was to engage the panzers near Garb Saleb, about 30 miles west of where the New Zealanders were stationed to the south. Behind them, in support, was the 7th Support Group. Just south of the 7th Armored would be the 1st and 5th South African Brigades of Major General Brink's 1st South African Division. But as the 7th Armored swung back up north, the 1st South African would go from protecting the 7th Armored's southern flank to its western flank, allowing it to focus on the Germans near Garb Saleb. And if all went well, in between the 7th Armored and the 1st South African would be the 22nd Guards Brigade. They would wait for the German armor to be hit and cleared away. Then they would set up supply stations about 40 miles south of Tobruk. From there, the British and their few American light tanks, the Honeys, could continue the battle and push the Germans and the Italians towards the coast, or at the very least, away from Tobruk's southern perimeter. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. 
And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. As previously stated, during the armored thrust, the infantry of the 8th Army of 13th Corps, now under Lieutenant General Goblin Austin, who came with Cunningham from East Africa, were tasked with nailing down the Axis forces along the front, closer to the coast and along the frontier wire, further south. But once the German armor was destroyed, or at least well on its way in that direction, the Commonwealth infantry would move out. The idea was for the 4th Indian Division, under Major General Meservy, to get around the Savona Division, stationed just north of City Omar, itself about 20 miles south of Fort Campuzo. Once they were in position, the Indians were to attack the Italian force from behind and push them to the east, or at the very least, to make sure they did not go back to the west. That way, the 30th Corps' tanks would have the German panzers all to themselves. During this, the 2nd New Zealand Infantry Division would swing just south of City Omar and then head north, just in between where the Italians had started their day and the German armor to their west. If they could go up far enough north to make it to the coast, the entire Italian infantry front line would be surrounded, with the Indians to their east, tanks to their west, and the New Zealanders to their north. And there were some heavy infantry tanks, the Matildas, with the Indians and the New Zealand infantry. As for the then-trapped Italian division that made up the entire frontier line, they could probably head due south to freedom, but that would only lead them further into the desert. Their chances of surviving there were remote. So, as it was planned, Crusader needed the tanks to engage first at the very least, to tie down the panzers, so they could not move east to help the Italian division, as it was to be surrounded. When looked at on a map, Crusader was much like so many other battle plans. There were lines and arrows, timetables, and anticipated enemy reactions. But what if those timetables weren't met? What if Rommel did not react to the attack at Geb Saleb, with his tanks, so they could be destroyed by the 30th Corps. And there were other concerns as well. The Commonwealth Infantry wanted more tank support, as they were responsible for reducing and capturing outposts along the way. And the armor swinging up from the British left flank wanted more infantry support, 
and a more free hand. After all, the Germans had not been given a copy of Crusader. Did they know where and when they were supposed to be? As for the Commonwealth nations supporting the soldiers, they had more practical problems than just battle nerves. It was now late September. Operation Crusader was slated for mid-November. But not just soldiers suffer from nervousness before a battle. As October opened up, Churchill, being Churchill, radioed Auchinleck that it would be prudent to commence his attack much earlier than planned for. A broken record, to be sure. Meanwhile, the Australian government also sent word that the attack should commence soonest, if for no other reason than to help their countrymen trapped at Tobruk. Then New Zealand got involved and wanted the RAF C&C Tatters guarantee that his planes were protecting their countrymen better than what they had done in Greece or Crete. But Auchinleck didn't have time for this. His days were spent dealing with what men and machines and supplies were still coming in to be a part of Crusader. Men had to be trained, equipment made desert-ready, and supplies had to be moved to where they were needed most. But still, the Australian government kept its shrill cries about its men at Tobruk. Auchinleck, for his part, wanted to reply, I'm trying to ready for battle. London is focused on Malta. And you want me to divert ships and planes from both to remove your soldiers from their position. And yet, that's what he set out to do. So during the August and September, before Crusader was underway, when there were moonless nights, Lieutenant General Leslie Moorhead's men were taken away, replaced by the 1st Polish Brigade and the 6th British Division, renumbered the 70th British Division of General Scobie from Syria. On a side note, Morshead's nickname was Ming the Merciless for his attention to detail. Later, his name was shortened to Ming after the villain in the Flash Gordon comics. One may wonder, if the men could be replaced, then they could have been disembarked altogether. Why leave them there at all? The short answer is that it inconvenienced Rommel. Significant resources had to be kept around Tobruk as long as the port city held out. Where they could not be was along the German frontier, helping Rommel to overrun the British, who already had their backs way too close to Alexandria already. But as October came, the Axis got wind of what the British Navy was up to at Tobruk, so applied more pressure. The losses suffered by Admiral Cunningham became eventually unacceptable, which forced him to shut down the transferring of men. The last one and a half Australian battalions remained at Tobruk. As the date for Operation Crusader came closer, the British fighting spirit rose, as did that of the Germans. Going in, the British had a total of 118,000 soldiers. The access, 119,000. The British had 610 medium tanks, along with another 100 more inside Tobruk itself. The Axis, 330. The British had 530 aircraft. The Axis, 342. What's more, the British had another 180 tanks in workshops back in Alexandria 
and another 210 tanks on the way. They were, in fact, on the seas now, en route. Rommel would not be resupplied tank-wise until January, and knew so. With all this known, Churchill was confident, eager even. If Crusader turned out to be another Operation Compass, he would pull the trigger on one of three other plans, already on the desks of the appropriate staffs. Operation Acrobat would have thrown forces at Tripoli, which would then advance towards Tunisia, hopefully with the help of French forces in North Africa, who would finally see the light. Or Operation Gymnast, which would see the invasion of French North Africa with maybe the help of the United States. And lastly, Whipcord would order a launching on Sicily itself, but only if Mussolini's government looked like it was tottering, due to the success of Crusader. Indeed, Italy seemed to be the weak underbelly of the German crocodile. Oh, the possibilities. And yet, the confidence of the British was also based upon intangibles. To them, it seemed that their planning staff, or leaders in the field, just had a gift for tactical insights. Surely, an epiphany would happen here, again, once battle was commenced. And though the British tank guns were not equal of their German counterparts, surely their faster speed would negate such an advantage. Speed would allow the British to get into a position to hit the enemy on its side or rear. And so what if the Germans were better gunners at this point? Didn't war really come down to Elan? And that feeling of superiority was wrapped around the Commonwealth's numerical superiority, hiding their weak points, of which they would learn soon enough. Greetings, everyone. Ray here. So um, I hope you appreciate that there was no Harry's commercial in the middle of this. Sorry, just doing what a guy's got to do. Um, I do want to remind everyone that there are membership episodes. Um, if you go to the website worldwar2podcast.net, you can see where I just explained the situation where I can't tell every story there possibly is about World War II, sometimes even the supporting or behind-the-scenes story. So I started up a membership series where I talk about various um, events, and you can sign up for that. It's $5 a month, and you get two extra episodes a month. So, so far, there are 84 episodes. We've done things like the Guinea Pig Club, the SS using prisoners to counterfeit millions of uh, British pounds, um, the 1936 Olympics, the Krupp family, the Germany's, if not Europe's, largest arms manufacturer, and uh, the Jews in Warsaw, just a whole bunch of things. I can't remember them all right now, but again, that's just another option for you. If what I'm putting out is not enough, sorry, I wish I could do more, but could just consider the membership and you can find all the information on uh, worldwar2podcast.net or just send me an email if you have any questions, uh, podcast at gmail.com. So I just slipped this one in. We'll be doing another episode soon, uh, which there will be a Harry's commercial. Again, I'm just doing what I got to do. I certainly do appreciate your patience. I know it's not the greatest thing in the world, um, but I'm just trying to justify spending all this time on this stuff. So hope you enjoy this and I will see you soon. 
uh, probably I'll probably give Stalin a miss next time and just do just get started with uh, Operation Crusader, the actual battle. Take care, everyone.